Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yes. Um, so I kind of bounced around a little growing up. I um, was born in Southern California um, and then uh, moved to um, Kenya when I was uh, uh, very young and lived there for several years. And then um, we moved to Appleton, Wisconsin, which is a paper mill town in uh, Northern Wisconsin uh, in the early nineties. And then uh, in the late nineties, moved back to Africa, this time to Zimbabwe for a year and then back to Appleton. And then mm -hmm. Appleton is where I graduated from high school. And then I never went back. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, what kind of food was, was present during those times bouncing around? You know, did you get a good sense of, of the kinds of differences in cuisines from those different places? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like in Kenya, um, you know, obviously uh, the food was very um, regionally specific there, um, especially for part of it. For uh, I think about a year, we lived in a little village called Igunga, which is in the western part of the country um, near Lake Victoria. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like a very like rural, very, very rural village. Um, and so that was like, you know, kind of traditional um, Lunya food, uh, Luya um, the people there uh, uh, was, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, I, I don't know, like I, I struggle to describe it in any way other than like kind of like maize based staple dishes. Um, uh -huh. um, and so, you know, that was what we had while we were there. Um, when I moved to Appleton, obviously that was a very different uh, uh, type of cuisine, <laughs> culture shock. -y. Right. Um, uh, so, um, you know, it, Appleton, like, you know, it's, it, there's like a lot of malls and, and, and fast food and stuff like that. But my dad had actually been a chef when he was younger. He'd been the head chef of a restaurant in, in St. Louis. And he was a very confident, confident cook. Um, I've never seen him open a, a recipe book in his life. Um, <laughs> and, and so he was he was the main cook in our household. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, I, I would say it was pretty like traditional fare. Um, I mean, he, he liked French food a lot. He was a Francophile. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, so, so I'd say like, on like, you know, good nights we'd have, you know, like a filet mignon with like a couple of like side dishes and, um, he was really into trimming, trimming the meat himself. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then, um, around, uh, when I was like 12 or 13, my dad started working out of town. So he'd fly out every, every Monday and fly back on Fridays and, my mother did not cook at all. Um, in fact, I've, I've never even seen her in a kitchen. Um, <laughs> so at that point, it became like my mom would like leave money on the counter and we'd like order pizza. Um, and then uh, when I was like 15, I got a job in a restaurant, uh, kind of like a high end, like white tablecloth place. Mm -hmm. And um, I pretty much just like every every night I just like had family meal there. And that's where I got most of my sustenance. And I worked there <laughs> through the end of high school. Right. Uh, did you like cooking? Do you still cook? I love cooking. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I'm a, I, the primary cook in my household now. Um, I, I'm very, uh, yeah, I love cooking. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. And, you know, you started your career in magazines. Why did you want to work in magazines to begin with? Uh, God, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, that's such a complicated question. Like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer this in a way that I feel like is really cliched and like apologize in advance for that. Like I've always <laughs> been good at it. Everyone has all, all my teachers had always been like, you are really good at writing. And um, I was a kind of a really bad student in every other aspect. And so mm -hmm. that was just kind of the thing that like I latched onto and was like, this is, there's like a pathway here um, that, that, um, that seemed like one that I could excel at. And, and what I really liked about it was that it was a portfolio based pathway where it was right. like, if I could, 
present, um, you know, if I could do a good job on, on a writing assignment, if I could publish something, then it kind of um, made up for uh, lacking the other credentials around academics. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I, I kind of just, you know, took that path. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to publish a lot. I'm going to be like a real like self-starter and like pitch a ton in college and, um, and like have like a real like clipbook um, by mm-hmm. the time I graduate. Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, that will kind of make up for the fact that I'm just like a, a astoundingly subpar student. <laughs> and did that, did that work out? Is that how you, you got into, you know, your first jobs? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it did. Um, I got my first internship in Chicago at Chicago Magazine. That was like a fact-checking internship. And I, at that point, I've been working on the school newspaper. I went to Columbia College in Chicago, which is like an art school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got an internship at Chicago Magazine um, that, 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 I, you know, wrote while I was there, I, I pitched a bunch into different sections and, and wrote for it. And um, after college, I applied to New York Magazine, um, having never been to New York. I've been to New York once at that point, for like a week, <laughs> but, I, but like, I definitely did not know, you know, New York from Chicago, from Appleton. Like, it just didn't, none of it made any sense to me. Um, but I, like, used my cousin's address on my resume to imply that I already lived there, which I did not. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I had, like, a pretty good clipbook at that point. I've been writing for a lot of like small publications around Chicago and, and you probably like five or six different like magazines and zines. Um, and, uh, and coupled with uh, the, the, what I would say the minor lie that I already lived in New York. Um, <laughs> uh, they, I got an internship at New York magazine, which at that point was a, a full-time um, minimum wage position, but full-time. Right. Um, and so then I, you know, I, I had to figure out how to move to New York. I moved to New York in like four days. I, mm-hmm. I like, I found an apartment on Craigslist, went back to St. Louis where my, my family was at that point and um, then drove back and, you know, basically moved into the first apartment I saw, which was this terrible loft in South Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I started at New York and I, I, you know, wrote for every section while I was there. I, I made myself kind of indispensable in that internship and they kept me on afterwards and, um, and you know, that it just, I've, I'm just, I'm, I'm good at being, um, uh, annoying until I get something published. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. What were you writing? What kind of stuff were you focused on writing? Uh, I, I was kind of just doing everything. I mean, at that point in my career, you know, I was like 22, 23, like it was, it was, um, I, I worked a lot with the books editor Boris, and so you know mm-hmm. I, I was doing a lot of like like book kind of collating like reviews and 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 you know figuring out what we would pass along to Sam Anderson, who was the critic at the right. time, and um, uh, you know I kind of made myself in charge of the the, the book galley room. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I ended up editing this little section called um, Agenda, which was at that time I, I think it's changed a lot since then, but at the time it was like a you know five or six things that you could do in the upcoming week. Um, I, I did a thing called the recession index, um, Mm -hmm. which, which was a cool little, um, basically, so this was obviously 2008, um, Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, the economy had just tanked. And so we started putting together like a little, um, I don't know, index or like a, like a a documented data sets from the, from the, the recession. So like how many, uh, uh, Lehman Brothers bankers had been fired that week, or mm-hmm. or you know things like that. Um, uh, and uh, you know, so they were they were kind of quirky. Like I, I I'm struggling to like think of like a good example, but like 
uh, like how much Brooks Brothers stock was down, like that kind of right. stuff. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I was doing that and I was doing the book stuff and I was doing agenda um, and I was writing little like culturally things. I don't know. I mean, it was like, you know, again, I was like 22. So I was writing mm -hmm. basically anything that anything that I could. Um, and I was doing, <laughs> crucially, I was also doing a lot of party lines reporting for Jada, right. um, uh, who was that time at that point, the kind of like the queen of party lines. Um, and that that was great because that meant like I would get sent to, um, you know, uh, some ridiculous celeb um, party where I wouldn't have to buy myself dinner because there'd be like past hors d'oeuvres. So that mm -hmm. was like a real like act of kindness. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, all I had to do was kind of like find a couple of celebrities and ask them questions. Unfortunately, that's the thing in my job that I was like the worst at. Um, really? So yeah, I'm just, I'm incredibly like shy about like, I, I don't like to like approach people at parties. It's not right. what I do. So, um, <laughs> so I ended up like, like doing, you know, kind of like sidekicking it with other reporters. But for the most part, I was just there for the hors d'oeuvres, to be honest. Right. Um, how long were you there? Because I started there at the end of 2009. Uh, I left in the beginning of 2009. So oh, okay, like, cool. like middle of 2008 to... Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, around, I guess, mid-2009. Well, how was it that you decided to leave the magazine industry? And are you, you know, completely out of it now? Are, is... Is yeah, that, I, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would say I'm, I'm pretty pretty much out of it. Um, you know, I, so from, from New York Mag, I, I went to, I ended up going to grad school at NYU. Um, I don't know, I, in retrospect, I have no idea why I did this. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it seemed, like a, it seemed like an opportunity to like write like a thesis and like do another, um, another thing that I could then pitch into like a portfolio. So I was, writing, mm -hmm. I was writing a thesis about the independent publishing industry, which I was really interested in at that point. Um, and... Uh, you know, that was kind of like, I thought of it as an opportunity to, to just kind of like write like a book proposal, basically. Right. Um, I was really interested in how indie publishers were innovating against like the big, the big houses, um, which is still kind of a fascination of mine, just like in, in alcohol. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, I, I was there for three semesters. And then I was also working at Esquire. I'd gotten a job as a fact checker at Esquire. So um uh, I was doing that on um, uh, a regular basis too. And then I'd also was, had started working at this distillery, Kings County Distillery, um, which was where um, David Haskell, who's now the editor in chief of, of um, New York Magazine, um, had started this distillery and asked me to be their first employee, um, which is a, a, another kind of great kindness of his to just like teach me how to make whiskey. Um, <laughs> so I was doing a lot. Uh, and this was like 2010. Um, and then... At the end of 2010, my dad died suddenly, and um, I didn't finish. I didn't finish grad school. I was like one credit shy of it, but I had to like I had to stop going to classes because I was kind of like you know grief struck. Of course. And um, like two weeks later, I got an, an, a, a job offer from GQ, um, and that was just kind of just very very shocking to me, but um, also amazing. Um, and so I kind of immediately, I, I, I quit grad school, I quit Esquire, and then I you know, sort of wound down my time at Kings County Distillery and started doing, um, uh, started working at GQ and I kind of dove into that um, headfirst and um, was there for like five years. Um, and, you know, the reason I would say I left magazines is, um, you know, I started to see a pathway around alcohol um, mm -hmm. was opening up for me and that, that seemed... Um, it seemed like something that was worth pursuing and 
you know, at the same time, I started to kind of look down the line a little bit at what my magazine career might look like. And, you know, magazines are, <laughs> it, it, it was looking, it was looking to me like there were maybe, um, you know, a handful of jobs that would be available in magazines in 10, 15 years. And I, 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 perhaps this was, you know, like imposter syndrome or like a lack of confidence or whatever, but I didn't see myself as one of the people that would have those jobs. I saw a couple of people I was working with and I was like, these people will be the three remaining editors in chief, um, in this industry. And, um, uh, I, I was like, I'm going to be fighting for, um, you know, senior editor scraps, um, yeah. into my like forties and fifties and then I'm still <laughs> not going to have a retirement. And right. At the same time, I'd started to do this consulting work around liquor. Um, you know, I've been writing about liquor for a long time. I knew how to distill. Um, and the consulting work um, was was a lot more interesting to me. And so I basically started thinking of it as like basically writing display copy. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I, you know coming up with a name for a liquor brand or, um, excuse me, writing a, a label copy for it, um, coming up with brand voice stuff is, is really just like writing um, a really good caption or, mm-hmm. or a really good headline or a really good deck. And that's stuff that I've always been really good at. I'm really good at writing in brief. Um, and so I started doing that for liquor brands and there was, I realized there was an entire kind of niche industry there. Um, and so I did that for about um, uh, a year or so um, to just kind of give myself the confidence that it was something I could actually I could actually do. Um, and then I and then I left GQ. Um, and right. at the same time, I knew in the back of my head I was working on this vodka project, um, which I think we'll talk about. And, and, right. and that that that, um, that was also I was aware that I I needed to focus more energy on that, more energy than I would be able to um, had I continued to have you know that full time uh, ten to seven job. Right, right. And, you know, working at Kings County Distillery, was that your real in- entry point into the spirits world? Or did you have any interest in it before that? Uh, that was, yeah, that was my entry point. I mean, I had an interest in it in, in so far right. as like, I liked to like, you know, drink and and, and, and talk about drinking. And, and you know, I, I, at that point, like, I guess I had like, you know, a, a liberal arts student interest in like craft beer, right? Like, right. I, <laughs> I, I was like, oh, cool, this IPA, whatever. Um uh, but yeah, like, you know, at that point, I, again, I was like 23 when I started at Kings County Distillery and, um, I, I very quickly was like, oh, this, like, this is, this is fascinating. And, and that distillery was, was interesting in particular because it was the first, the first licensed distillery in New York city since prohibition. And, right. uh, David and Colin who started it, um, were pretty much self-taught distillers. Um, mm-hmm. so that meant, you know, we had like a little like library, um, there on, on one of the shelves in the distillery. And basically everything that we knew about making alcohol came from that library. It didn't come from mm-hmm. apprenticeships or preconceived notions about how you should make, make liquor. It was like us like reading books on like the chemistry of distillation and, um, and trial and erroring our around, way around recipes. Um, so that, that was a really um, uh, uh, deep end kind of like jumping into the deep end way of, mm-hmm. of, of learning about alcohol. It wasn't just like, um, you know, like, like there's nothing surface level about it. So by the time I ended that, I felt like I had like a really clear understanding of not just how our bourbon was made, but like how, how alcohol in general was made. And I took that with me to GQ and started writing about alcohol. Um, and, and I would say like that experience really informed how I wrote about alcohol, because at that point I was really interested then in, in where grain was sourced and how it was sourced and, 
um, and, uh, and and how you know in, in in how craft brands were innovating in ways that the big brands weren't, and um, and you know that that obsession kind of uh, it, it, um, led to just kind of how I wrote about it. Right, and you know how does how how did your understanding of the big brands versus the smaller brands how did you you know get there to you know like was there a moment where you were like you realized that there was a huge difference in these ways of of doing things and that maybe one way was a little bit more destructive rather than constructive and how has that you know how did you bring that to writing about it and how did you bring that to working in the industry like yeah. this this yeah that's a good question you know i i um I guess the first thing that kind of tipped me off was the way that people would ask about liquor on tours. So, you know, we'd, we would do these little tours at, of our distillery and, and it, it became really clear to me that there were all these preconceived ideas about what bourbon was and what it had to be and what it had to taste like that mm-hmm. were, that were not, that didn't occur naturally. They happened as the result of, of, of decades long misinformation campaigns. Um, where you know these the, a lot of the big distillers in Kentucky wanted you to believe that al- that bourbon could not be made outside of Kentucky, um, even though that had never been true. Um, and uh, you know that that kind of stuff. You know, every tour there was somebody that would ask about that. Why, how can this be bourbon if it's not made in Kentucky? <laughs> um, and and then there was also you know they would taste it and they'd be like, this doesn't taste like bourbon. And I'd be like, well, I mean, what do you do? You, if you think that bourbon tastes like Maker's Mark that's 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 not that's not true right that's that's um there's something messed up there about how we're um putting flavor profiles out in the world and a lot of it is because a lot of these distilleries basically share resources to the extent that a lot of their product is made in the same distilleries from the same grain and um very 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 similar mash bills um so so people would kind of come in there with this idea that like if it didn't taste like Maker's Mark and Knob Creek, which are functionally identical, um, right. then it um, then it wasn't. Uh, then then they were like, "Well, why does it taste wrong?" And <laughs> that that was something that I, I just I just like like kind of mentally like went to war with that. Like I yeah, it was like the, like what is this idea that we have that something has to taste this way? Bourbon is just something that is made in America, made from fifty one percent corn, and and put in a barrel for at least a day. Like that's all that right. that's all that it is, and it can taste like so many different things. Um, and uh, and I just you know I just really I really wanted to dive into um, um, where those misconceptions come from and and how we can challenge them so so it was less about like you know like at that point like the specifically about the sourcing and more for me about like like what can we do to challenge the notions of 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 what bourbon is and what alcohol is in general right and uh i think that this is such an interesting thing because and you know we've talked about this before when i i wrote on booze but the idea that brands really own the flavor and they own the categories. And so many times people don't ask for a spirit, they ask for a brand. And mm-hmm. and I think that this happens across the spectrum in food, especially in the United States, where people really connect food products to brand products. And like, you know, the, mm-hmm. they won't think of like maybe mayonnaise as something you could make with eggs and olive oil, but as like Hellman's in a jar, you know, or like chocolate isn't, you know, a pod of cacao. It's, you know, a a Hershey bar. And, but I think that it's less questioned, of course, in alcohol. And there's this really 
and I guess it was prohibition. Maybe you can talk more about that, but like how this kind of understanding of where alcohol comes from was totally cut off, you know, and um, how, I mean, yeah. What do you think is the cause of this that, you know, that, I mean, obviously it's money, uh, the, the brands have money, but like, you know, there's this real disconnect between the origins and everything. And that's why there's brands, you know, like Tito's vodka or, or that can say that they're handcrafted or, you know, mm-hmm. they, people make a big deal about a spirit being gluten-free and it's like, well, of course there's no gluten in it, but right. you know, like what is, how is this misinformation so powerful in alcohol? You know, I think I think conglomerization is a big part of it. it, it right. It's that conglomerization demands um, uh, uh, things to be kind of um, uh, processes to be combined. Um, right. You know, that that's the, the entire reason that, that that companies like Diageo and Dean Centauri and Brown Foreman, the entire reason they're so profitable is because they share so many resources across brands. And to some extent, the, the, it doesn't even make sense to talk about those brands as distinct things other than labels. Um, it's 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 that they're creating all this stuff in the same places and then it goes to a bottling line and at the bottling line they kind of decide okay what what uh, which of these spirits is it going to be um and and you know that that's that's kind of what happens in uh product uh generation too new product development is is they they have the the, the liquid is the last thing that they think about the the what they first think about is what's the name going to be and what's the pack going to look like and how is that going to appeal to the demographic that we want um, because the the liquid inside is is the easiest part. It's already done. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're just not they're not interested in in, in um, changing that because it would be so disruptive to their efficiency to do that. Um, you know, they, these these are companies that have these gigantic industrialized supply chains. One big farm feeding, um, you know, one big wholesaler feeding one big distillery, which is basically like a big you know ethanol plant. Um, um, and then that's churning out, uh, you know, neutral grain spirit, which is like 95% alcohol, basically pure, um, into uh, a, a series of even of little but also still big distilleries that are then putting it into barrels, and and it's it's just it's so um, be so disruptive to their bottom line to uh, have to to break out the different pieces of that into um, you know interesting parts like to say okay we're going to source at this one a little farm that's making a really amazing like like batch of something this year just getting like the the, the logistics involved in that the trucks to move that stuff from the farm to their processing facility is way more expensive than they would ever than they would ever agree to um, right so so these it's it's really like they've they've built up these these efficiencies um and they, they, these efficiencies compound on one another uh, until you basically have something that, like, if you want to start a new spirit at, at you know, a big house, it's, it's the question is not where will the spirit come from? The question is, which of our pre-existing spirits are you going to put into a new bottle? Right. And how has, you know, the craft movement in spirits pushed back against this? And, and ha- are you think, do you think it's being successful in this? Um, or is it being successful maybe only in tiny pockets where people really have access to these things? Uh, no, I'll answer the latter, that, that, the latter yeah. question. Um, uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, it, it, that, that, is, that is a part of it. Um, uh, has it been successful? Um, I think it is it is in the process of being successful, and I right. think that you're seeing the big houses kind of um, uh, realign against these these new expectations for the kind of numbers that craft brands could can do. Um, 
and and you know to them that means you know and, and forgive my cynicism as I recount this but to them it remain it, it means um purchasing uh, a craft brand and incorporating it into their pre-existing supply chain. So if, if they see like a, like a small bourbon brand doing something interesting, what they're not, they're not interested in the liquid inside of it. They're interested in the label and people's relationship to that label. So what the way that it's changing the industry, and again, I, I understand that this is kind of a cynical way to, to, to view this is is that they're 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 seeing that they have to talk about their spirits differently because they're seeing that those craft labels are having an impact. They're not looking at that though and saying we need to make our spirits differently because that is off the table. That's not right. a, that's not an, a, a, a thing that they're going to do. Um, so, you know, I I think that I think that a lot of them see these craft brands that come up and say, you know, we use like a state grown corn or or you know we um, or or talking a little bit more about their mash bills and what they'll say is, oh, that's interesting. That's okay. We can do that too. We can, we can have some, some buzzwords about, um, about our, our, our harvest or whatever um, on the label. And if you pay attention to the way that some of these bigger brands, I'm not going to say which ones, but if you pay attention mm-hmm. to the way their labels have changed in the last five years, you will see this influx of dialogue around, around sourcing. Um, and it's, it's almost always just like vague to the point of nonsense, um, you know, like the best rye fields in Poland or whatever, you know, like right. they, 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 Oh, under- I know, I know what brand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and they, that was, that was not as coy as I thought it would be. Um, and, and yeah, that's so why I, I would say that they're changing the industry in that way, although it is, it is a, a label deep change. Um, right. Yeah. For the most part. No, and it's so obnoxious because it's such an obfuscation of the the issues, and it and it's there's so much virtue washing. I think in alcohol, in and in as opposed to other food aspects, you know, like when we're talking about food, like it could be really difficult to like feed someone like Oscar Mayer hot dogs or something, and like tell them it's like we're doing something good, you know. But mm-hmm. Bacardi. I mean, whatever, I'll say what brand because I don't work in the industry. (laughs) But like, uh, you know, they'll pay someone money to like support a festival or something that's about, you know, diversity in the industry or like education around the history of, you know, black work in the industry or brown work in the industry. And then, you know, where does their molasses come from? You know, they (laughs) and it's like it's just it's on another level I th- in the alcohol industry with all this money. And it's, it's just really upsetting constantly <laughs> to, to see because people don't really listen and people don't really have a, a consciousness about it. And I right. mean, and also that access point is really difficult. So, you know, with good vodka, which you've launched last year, you know, how are you thinking about how to bring your product to more people, you know, to not just have it, you know, at Duke's liquor box in Greenpoint, you know, <laughs> well, we are, we are in more liquor stores than that now. We've yes. expanded, expanded <laughs> a bit and I, and I do want to expand a bit, but, um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I see, a I see good vodka as a platform. I don't see it as a, as a brand. Um, right. I see it as a, as an opportunity to rethink the way that not just how coffee fruit is processed and discarded, but also how alcohol can be made. And, and it's, it's important to me that, you know, vo- the vodka is the, the, the proof case in this. The vodka mm-hmm. is how I say, here is what we can do with this. But, but um, I, you know, my, I'm not ashamed to say my sights are set on anything that has a neutral spirit base. Um, you know, I, I want to prove that we can make 
a number of different products from from coffee fruit um and uh that's um you know that that's what's interesting to me about it not just like not just one product so I'm, that's what that's something i'm working on um but you know that that the reason this is so complicated is because it involves a supply chain that is that is it's never it's new it's novel it's never been done before um there there, there was no there was no movement of of the coffee fruit wastewater from mm -hmm. point a to point b before we started doing it and there it had actually never been imported to the united states before um, so, you know, cascara is, is having a little bit of a moment and there is now some, some, uh, importing of dried cascara, but what we use is, is, is a fresh, um, ripe fruit concentrate, um, because that's where the sugars live. That's where there's the most sugar. Um, and, and that's just like every, every step that we grow is like a new, um, it involves more logistical work just to get it from, again, from point A to point B. So that that said, like I like I've I've got a scalable model in place um, with the Colombian Coffee Federation, um, but you know it's 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 I'm I'm seeing how the vodka does. I'm seeing how people respond to it, and then um, hopefully later this year we're going to launch our second product, and, and yeah, and that will be very exciting as well. Nice. Um, well, to step back, uh, how did Good Vodka come to be? So uh, at the time. Um, I had started, I was doing some consulting work around liquor, as I mentioned, and um, I, I had become uh, kind of disillusioned by some of the, the, the projects that I was working on, and, you know, continued to work on for several years after that. But, <laughs> um, it, it, was, it was this time where, the, like I said, the big, the big clients, the big brands were changing their label copy or, or coming up with, with new products that, again, they wanted to uh, present as, um, you know, uh, millennial appealing. Um, and the mm -hmm. word, the way that they wanted to do that was by talking more about their sourcing and using this craft language. Um, and, and in some cases also talking about sustainability, but, but it was really frustrating to me because again, I would, I would ask, you know, what, what, what is interesting about the liquid? What are the quote unquote product truths that we can, that we can put in a label copy and the, the answer to that would be TK, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's not, they don't have them yet. Um, right. <laughs> because they're, they're, they, they, the product truths are the least important part. Um, the, to them, again, it's, it's we're going to take this label, we're going to put it in front of some focus groups, and then if it does well, we're going to launch it into the market at a price point that we feel like there's an opportunity to, to carve market share out of. Um, and uh, that, that process precludes interesting spirits um it, it doesn't it doesn't give an opportunity to to really innovate there and so i was doing these these projects where where all i wanted was one to be like here is an interesting liquid we started mm -hmm. we started at square one to come up with some interesting shit here and we just need you to describe it and what i realized was that that was actually they would never give me that assignment because that would be so easy you would it's incredibly easy to sell a product that has an interesting liquid inside of it, but that's not what exists on the market. What you're selling is a vibe or a mentality or an emotion or a, or a, a, a time to, you know, to celebrate or something, you know, you're selling like a captain character with his leg on a barrel um, or, or like a sea creature. Like that's, that's why they have these like fanciful names and made up backstories. Um, you know, all of these, think about all these bourbons that have like someone's name on the front. That name is not associated with the, the product. Um, uh, the, the, it's not like, 
you can't like trace back like a history um, of, of Captain Morgan to how mm -hmm. that rum is made. Um, so, you know, I, I was doing that and I was, I was starting to feel like someone needs to make a spirit from square one where, where what's interesting about it is, is built into how we make it. Not just like, not the, the other way around, not like we, we, we have this liquid and now we need to like contrive ways to describe it that are good. Um, but like, what if like the way we sourced it was already good? Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, my business partner, Tristan, was starting to play around with coffee fruit. He had gone to visit a coffee farm in Guatemala. He, he had seen this pile of fruit in the corner and become, become kind of fascinated. Tristan had worked at Kings County Distillery with me. He'd become kind of fascinated with um, the opportunity to, to distill it and play around with that. Um, at that point, he, he was at Booker and Dax Bar at that point, and, you know, very like experimental cocktail bar um, in the Momofuku Empire. And, um, and he, you know, kind of like for a couple of years after that kind of kept this fruit in mind and, 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 and thought about like the opportunities there. And then we linked up and I thought, okay, this is, this is the opportunity to do the thing that I want with the thing that he wants and kind of combine these, these ambitions and use the coffee fruit to build a spirit from the ground up um, that, that can, um, you know, speak to these uh, things that people actually want in a spirit, which is um, transparency, traceability, um, eco-consciousness, um, and at, you know, at the end of the day, like deliciousness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how did you bring that to market? What have, what have been like the, the challenges and the, you know, just the, the necessities of, you know, making a spirit like this and bringing it to market? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it took six years, so there were a lot <laughs> of them. Um, uh, you know, we had to, first of all, we had to figure out, like, what we were, where we were going to process the fruit and how we were going to process the fruit. And then once we got down there, we also had to think about what piece of the fruit we're going to process. So if you think about the, the, the piece of coffee fruit, there's the cascara, which is like the shell, the husk around the fruit. And then there's a layer of pulp, which is kind of like a mushy, sticky, um, pulp, pulpy stuff. Um, and then there's the parchment, which is a kind of like a paper around the bean. And then there's the bean. Um, and like I said, around that time, so this is like 2015, early 2015, um, there, there's a little bit more of an economy growing around cascara as a tea, which is something mm -hmm. that was actually um, uh, uh, something that was occurring in East Africa for a while um, traditionally, um, but, but hadn't, really, it hadn't really taken place much in Latin America at all, and certainly not in, in America. Um, and so we started looking at that cascara tea, this dried tea substance, but we realized that um, two things. First of all, um, the, we, we weren't getting as much sugar out of it because it had been dried and just wasn't retaining the sugar in, in a way that was efficient to, to distill. Um, and two, that there, there were new economies kind of being built up around this that were uh, subverting its byproduct nature, um, where, where it became, um, it was becoming profitable to grow a coffee fruit specifically for the purpose of drying and selling the cascara. Um, and I was looking at that and especially as like Starbucks and blue bottle were kind of, you know, looking at that too. Um, and, and to me, that was not a byproduct. That was a product product. Um, that's that if you're going to like install, you know, tens of thousands of dollars of equipment on a coffee co-op to dry um, cascara and you're going to pick it, for its ripeness specifically for a cascara flavor profile. Um, to me, that, that seemed like a little bit like not what I was interested in. Um, but at the same time, we started looking at the coffee wastewater. 
Um, and the wastewater was really fascinating because it was basically like in, in certain types of coffee processing, semi-wet processing, they were washing the, the beans, washing the pulp off of the beans and ending up with this liquid that was that had a lot of suspended uh, pulp in it and, and, and in that pulp sugar. And we realized that if we could take that wastewater and concentrate it, we could make a syrup, kind of like a like a, a eco-conscious molasses. Um, and that's where we started focusing then. So everything that I've described to you in the last two minutes was like six years of work, but it was like, um, but but each of those steps along the way took took a year. And then eventually we we got to this wastewater. We did a lot of tests on it. We um, shipped a uh, a a hobby still down to an Airbnb in Colombia in Santa Marta um, and spent like a month down there just like distilling um, coffee fruit. Um, and eventually we had a product that tasted kind of interesting. It was a brandy at that point. So it was one step before a vodka. And um, and we we tasted it. We thought this is this is delicious. It can only get more delicious. Um, you know, if, if, if we distill it one more time, it's just going to be just incredibly pure, but still have some interesting notes to it. Um, and at that point, then we, we started working with the Colombian Coffee Federation to build out a, a, a logistics network with us um, to work with their pre-existing network of, of co-ops and, and, and farmers to, um, to source the wastewater. And the other thing I'll add to that is that this wastewater stuff um, can't be used as fertilizer. Um, that was important to us too. It, 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 it's too wet um, and it just ends up creating methane emissions. Um, so, uh, when when we were looking at the cascara, one of the farmers down in Colombia said to us, you know, you can you can take this stuff, but basically then if an organic farmer is going to have to go out and buy a new fertilizer source, and it became equally important to us to not disrupt that that already good reuse um, chain. Um, so so the wastewater was really interesting for that reason. Farmers in Colombia also get fined if they don't dispose of it properly. Um, but it's expensive to dispose of it properly. So a lot of them are just eating that fine. So for all of these reasons, we started working on this wastewater material um, and the Coffee Federation helped facilitate that. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, how has the response been on from, you know, consumers? I know you launched at an odd time when, you know, it, it's not like it's going to be in cocktails and that sort of thing. But how how has that been? The yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of imagined it as being a you know, a well spear. Like I wanted it to be in cocktail bars. I wanted it to go in cocktails. I, you know, that's where, where our network was strongest. Um, but, you know, for, for obvious reasons, the, the, the a lot of cocktail bars aren't really operating at, at you know, full capacity right now. And, and, and many of them are closed down in general. And um, so we, we put it in a few bars just to kind of seed it out there and see how it got used and see how people liked it. I thought we'd, you know, sell like a case a month for the first like year. Um, but, but what actually ended up happening was a lot of liquor stores reached out to us and, and asked if they could bring it in. And, um, that's been really fascinating to watch. I did not imagine that the spirit would have a, have a, um, uh, a life in, in liquor stores that it does. Um, but mostly, mostly that, that's that I, just, I, you know, I struggled to imagine people like trying a new vodka when they go to, to the wine shop, but, um, I think uh, it does a good job of kind of selling itself on the bottle. And I think that, that the, you know, the, the same reason that we imagine bartenders would like it, liquor store owners like it too, because it, it's something interesting to recommend. There's mm -hmm. an interesting story to it. There's an interesting thing about it. It's for the same reason that it was easy to write the copy on the front of it, because mm -hmm. there's, you know, it's not hard to tell that story. Uh, I think shop owners like to be like, 
here's here's a, a bunch of things about it um, that that you know aren't just it's gluten free or you know it's handmade in Texas. Right, <laughs> and. You know, you said before that you want Good Vodka to be a platform, like something, I mean, do you, does that mean you want it to be something that kind of teaches people where alcohol comes from and that it could be made from waste? Yeah. I mean, well, when, when I said platform, I mean, like, I want like a lot of different alcohols to be made. From. Right. I would love to sell neutral alcohol made from coffee fruit to somebody that was thinking about buying it. As a as from as corn ethanol from a gigantic industrial um, ethanol plant, um, you know I would love uh, over the next few years as people imagine, um, you know what their their you know new ready to drink spirits could be if they if they went a step beyond thinking that it has to begin with neutral grain spirits from from Kentucky or Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, like like you know I at the same time. Um, to your to your point, I believe that simply telling people more about their liquid uh, challenges um, the the other the the bigger brands to do that as well. And so, as I've watched that happen, as I've watched the language change a little bit in 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 you know the way the big alcohol companies um, conceive of their labels, um, I, what I see is like them kind of getting challenged by the little brands to disclose a little bit more. And and you know I I think that they're they're you know doing it kind of weekly, but at the same time, I, I, I think that that challenge we made, I think that we can say like ours, you know, here's the harvest season. Here's the specific region it's from. Um, why don't you put a harvest season on a bottle? It's mystifying to me why more brands don't do that. Um, mm-hmm. it came from, you know, it's like the thing you say, the coffee always comes from somewhere. Like I like the, 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 the grain always comes from somewhere and it always came from some time too. And, um, and that to me has never been, um, I've never wanted to overlook that about alcohol. Right, right, right. And yeah, it's interesting because I was talking to Helena from um, House and yeah. were you guys, did you collaborate on the Know Your Alcohol website? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we were talking about, um, you know, how she was able to kind of sell directly to consumer with the their uh, aperitifs and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, her whole thing is about accessibility in that way. Um, but with Know Your Alcohol, you know, what how did you decide on the most important things to say to the consumer? And how did you, um, I mean, you said your thing was brevity in writing as well. So how, you know, how, how did you kind of figure out how to communicate with the, with people? I thought a lot about those tours that I used to give at Kings County Distillery and right. and what were the things that people asked that, that, that I wanted them to, I wanted them to know going in, what were the mm-hmm. things that, that, that um, sort of stopped the tour and had to be, you know, explained. Um, and to me, that's like, you know, the fact that the fact that people don't know that, that, you know, I hate to keep ragging on these two, but they're such a good example. The fact that people don't know that Maker's Mark and Knob Creek come from the same manufacturer, uh, to me, that's like, that's such a, a, a crucial right. point of how you look at the liquor store shelf that, the, that, that you have to understand that 99% of these spirits are made by 10 distillers. Um, and, and that the, 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 those distillers, you know, make them for pennies on the dollar. And, you know, to, to not to get too specific about this, but, but it, the most vodka brands, most big market vodka brands cost their producers about 75 cents to make, from, including everything, including the grain, including the distillation, including the, the, the bottle. Um, and then, you know, that's, that's their entire cost of goods. Um, 
So these are incredibly profitable. They're the profit margins on these are like seventy five percent, and and they they you know they they've been really really successful for these companies and. Um, it's really, really hard to compete with that as a craft brand. You can't get your cost of goods to 75 cents unless you're buying 10 million bottles at a time. Um, so that makes them more expensive. That means that if you're going to start a craft brand and you want to, you know, break even, you have to sell it for a little more. And then that puts you out of this kind of this, this purchase purchasable tier for a lot of people. So I, I really, I think that kind of thing, it's really important for me that people know why some of those brands are able to be so cheap um, mm-hmm. and, and why our brands need to be a little bit more expensive. At the same time, you know, we sell good vodka pretty cheaply for con- considering how it's made. And I would say pretty much break even um, because, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't want it to be a luxury spirit. I don't see any interest in making another Tesla when there's no Prius on the market. <laughs> like I don't, it, it's not interesting to me to have something that that people have to conspicuously spend um, in order to do the right thing. I wanted right. it to be the exact same uh, consumer decision, quote unquote, um, to buy the the the, the eco conscious brand than it is to buy the the regular brand. Right, and I mean, you mentioned that you're living in New Paltz and and you're the primary cook in your house. You know, how do you how do these ideas manifest in your everyday living? I feel like that's always the question people have. For me, you know, it's like, yeah. How, yeah. So how how do they, especially you know, living in New Paltz, I, I'm assuming you have some really good produce. Yeah, there's there's some really good there's a really good uh, co-op up here. One of the reasons we moved up here, my wife and I, is because there's a, it's a really amazing co-op in High Falls. <laughs> um, you know, I I I really I really like being near farms. I love being able to to know where things come from. Um, I when I do eat meat, I prefer to it to be traceable, uh, you know, and I, I probably, I'm not going to you know, say that I'm any sort of vegetarian, I'm not, <laughs> not but, but and I, you know, I, I would like to be more of one, but um, I, I do try to be intentional, intentional about how I, how I um, choose um, meat products in particular. Um, and it, it, it's important to me to kind of know where they came from and, and know that it's not like a, you know, gigantic factory farm. Um, and, you know, how, how does it manifest in my life? Um, Oh God, I don't know. I, probably not in as many ways as it should. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess, I, I, I don't want to like make it seem like, like I, like I moved up here as like a, you know, um, live off the grid kind of thing. <laughs> um, I realize that when I talk about like spirits, like I, I make myself out to like sound like a, like a, um, uh, like I'm like waging war against the um, consumerists and, and all of that. But um, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways, like I, I, I fail those tests too. Right. So, um, uh, you know, I, I like having a little bit of space between me and my neighbors. I never really felt I like, I like New York, but I never really felt like that was a hometown. I never actually, I don't actually feel like I have any hometown. I never felt that way about Appleton. I didn't feel that way about Kenya or Zimbabwe. Um, I, I didn't feel that way about LA. Like I, I, I just, um, I kind of feel comfortable anywhere, to be perfectly honest. I like traveling and I like kind of parachuting in somewhere and making a home there. Right, right, right. And, you know, for you, is drinking a political act? Um, making alcohol certainly right. a political act. Um, drinking, 
in insofar as is I, I try to be intentional uh, about you know the choices that I make and and in that intentionality I think there is a kind of rebellion um, then 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 yeah a little bit uh, but but to me it's like like making alcohol I think because it is so much like the you know not the path of least resistance because of we've chosen to do it like the hard way it is absolutely political to make those choices um, uh, it 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 is hard every day to not just buy neutral grain spirit from the same place that all the distillers that all the big distilleries do um mm -hmm. uh and it, it's challenging and um you know it's challenging to tell that story but it, but at the same time like like yeah i like this is something that i think is important and and you know to like like take this like full circle a little bit like i like i feel um like Part of part of what you know, growing up a little bit, spending time in Africa as a kid, um, did to me was it it kind of um, made it made it so that I didn't see the self mythology of America that I think it's like hammered into a lot of kids, and I I have a, like a great deal of skepticism about how about America in general and about mm -hmm. how. Um, like our our the things that we consume are made and sourced, um, and a lot of that comes from you know having kind of moved moved to Appleton like as an outsider um, with you know having having come from a very rural village in Kenya, um, and um, I I just I just don't like uh, I I don't know I just I just I don't, I don't take for granted that 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 we should be able to buy cheap alcohol from from gigantic conglomerates mm -hmm. um you know that's it to, to to put it how you do like they, it always comes from somewhere right like I, I i that's kind of my 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 mentality as well right well thank you so much for taking the time thank you thank you as well